Hello Breakers and welcome to the 16th episode of Project Studio Tea Break. I am Mike Senior and I'm here with the the Dark Prince of Crochet, John Whitten. <laughs> His Dark Holiness of um, Arts and Craft will do just fine. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Dark Overlord of Etsy is sort of how I see myself at this stage. So have you earned your tea break this month? Yeah, I absolutely have earned my tea break this month. <laughs> and it has been a lot of Edinburgh prep. It's been um, trying to source materials for puppets and 26 drumsticks. Build up the alcohol resistance. <laughs> It's more about haggis for me. I've been buying just gradually cheaper sausages going down a price point every week yeah. to try to be ready for the rank sack of intestines sold instead of food north of the wall. Come at me, Scottish fans. How about you, Mike? Have you earned this tea break? Is this a well-deserved tea break at this stage? Oh, well, I mean, I think so. I think it's practically a record-breaking tea break. We have now the video evidence of the world record attempt is up there for the Patreons. I'm so glad that's gone public. That's huge. I've sent it off to Guinness, but it'll take them like months to reply, apparently. So we'll see whether anything comes of it. But yes, it has been achieved. <laughs> Just for those who um who maybe haven't been following us as attentively as they should, <laughs> do you want to give us a, another rundown of the instruments you were playing simultaneously in this record attempt? Well, I used a kazoo as the main melody instrument. I was playing violin and shaker and piano and triangle mm -hmm. and tambourine and synth all at the same time with my various different hands and feet. Speaking as someone who's seen video evidence of this, it is something magnificent. <laughs> it, it really is. It involved a certain amount of risk of cramp. Mm -hmm, I can imagine. Holding a violin up for extended practice sessions while not supporting with anything but your shoulder is, yeah, <laughs> not good for the posture. I was curious, so I quickly googled kazoo concerto just to see how much respect this brilliant instrument has really got. <laughs> I got 112,000 results, Mike. For Kazoo Concerto? Yeah. At least the first page looks to be legitimate concertos. There's been more than one written um, for Kazoo. Wow. So I'm not quite sure what to make of that. I mean, that's got to be a poke in the eye for violists everywhere, doesn't it? <laughs> There are more kazoo concertos than viola concertos now, it seems. You know what? We're going to Google that as well. <laughs> viola concerto. Yeah. Two results. Yeah, well, that's what I figured. And they're both just pages of viola jokes. They're both just questions. Why are there no viola concertos? <laughs> they're both whingy live journal posts mm, mm. by embittered failed violinists. The campaign for banning viola concertos. <laughs> yes, there you go. Gigantic public support there. Now, speaking of rubbish musicianship. Oh, yes. You mentioned Nerds the Musical last month. True. And I thought, well, this is too good an opportunity to pass up. So I went and checked it out and it is rubbish it wasn't <laughs> just this lack of exclamation mark yes, that oh, did the dirty on it Mike it thrills me that you took the time and I also at the risk of I mean if in the middle of this podcast a SWAT team rushes in and okay. whisks me away to some unspecified location then you'll know that it's because I looked up Al-Qaeda the musical Mike why we've got a good thing going here you've got, <laughs> you've got a lovely wife and family <laughs> what possessed you and I can confirm that it doesn't seem to exist well okay Okay, now listen. That sounds like information we shouldn't necessarily be putting out there. Well, I mean, surely it's a challenge. <laughs> well, well, it does sort of feel that way. I mean, it is complicated by the fact that the group in question abhors the use of music. Mm. So realism is going to be tricky to come by. 
Yeah, I suppose but so. And when has musical theatre ever cared about that? We also had plenty of follow-up from last month's discussion of AI and uh, music generation and chat robots and things. Hot button issue. A few things from one of our favourite Patreon patrons, Dariush. He's back again. And he pointed out a couple of things. The first thing was that he said that um, if you input a bunch of human stuff into an AI algorithm to train it, Mm. that to some extent, the intention is therefore encoded into the algorithm. That's interesting. So you can't say that a computer has no intention when it generates something along algorithmic terms based on a bunch of human intention. Mm. I mean, the example he used was like, um, if you fed uh, an algorithm love poems, then its output would inevitably contain evocative like love poem language. That's a very good point. Yeah, and actually, I hadn't thought about this, but David Cope, the guy who did the algorithm, also made quite a similar point. And given last month's toast foley, I'll slightly rejig it. <laughs> he said, if you grate a carrot, <laughs> and then you get all the bits of grated carrot, uh-huh. and you press them into a carrot shape, <laughs> it'll still be extremely carroty, but it won't be a carrot anymore. I love the way you bring things to my level. I really do. <laughs> you can't take the carrotiness out of a bunch of grated carrot pressed into a carrot shape just because you've grated it. And all of a sudden, I understand artificial intelligence. You see, it's been made perfectly plain. Yes, extremely clear to the point that surely anyone could grasp it. Yeah, yeah. That is a very good point. The question is, though, mm. can musical intention be thought of as something as homogeneous as carrot? Does it get stuck in your teeth? Is what you're trying to say. <laughs> and a second point that Darius made was actually just something related. We pointed out this thing of people playing the role of chatbots to try and up the cred of AI algorithms. Yes. And he pointed out that this rabbit hole goes way deeper than I thought it did. <laughs> and he pointed me towards the fount of all tail-chasing wormholery. Oh dear, where did you go, Mike? Which is Reddit. Oh no, you got lost in a Reddit black hole. God, yeah. So he, he pointed out a subreddit called Totally Not Robots, <laughs> which is full of people pretending to be badly disguised chatbot. <laughs> now, that's pretty meta already because you've got a person pretending to be a chatbot that's pretending to be a human, right? Yes. But it goes even further because... <laughs> have you heard of OpenAI's GPT-2? I haven't, but I have now and I'm so excited to learn more. <laughs> okay. Well, OpenAI is this artificial intelligence research open source thing founded by Elon Musk and another guy. Mm -hmm. And the GPT-2 algorithm is one of their algorithms that has been applied to language. Okay. And they're using it to generate chatbot intelligence. Oh. And what they do with this algorithm is that they pre-train it. So they put it towards some forum or subreddit and get it to simulate the communication on that Reddit. And of course, Mm. this has now reached (laughs) the Totally No Robots Reddit. (laughs) So you've now got another subreddit that is examples of the GPT-2 chatbot Mm -hmm. mimicking the humans pretending to be chatbots that are mimicking humans. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So it's basically simulating the communication on the Totally No Robots site (laughs) via AI. (laughs) 
That's really amazing. And surely it can be only a matter of time before another competing AI company starts <laughs> pre-training their AI thing on the OpenAI one. So it's just going to go round and round and round until we get into this kind of feedback loop. What, actually, I think what we need for the next level of inception here, yeah. I need to ask you what kind of thing might appear on this subreddit of the AI imitating the people, imitating robots, imitating people. Because if you were able to give me a from-memory summary, then you would be a human imitating a robot, imitating humans, imitating robots, imitating humans. I would. <laughs> oh, my God. No, I can't off the top of my head. He sent me a little screen grab of one of the Reddit things, and it was epic. I cannot wait to have a look at that. Speaking of our lengthy philosophical diatribe last month, um, I got a little something on Twitter. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Just chasing us further down the rabbit <laughs> hole from a Twitter user Mel24242 uh, okay. who points out that what you say about music as what you say about language falls into the true but useless category for me <laughs> which I, I think is a flattering term for a lot of what we do in this podcast <laughs> yeah well except that only some of it's true <laughs> Oh, I did say flattering. Mm. I think I think it's too kind. <laughs> All right. Good. Um, <laughs> it's something we should maybe aspire to. <laughs> it go goes on to say, and this was fascinating to me, that Aristotle said that we can tell what someone believes by how they behave. Okay. The classic example is rather than discussing whether you believe in a chair, you watch how someone sits down, which appealed to me. Okay. And, and then if they sit down with confidence, you can assume they believe in a chair. Yeah, that is a good one. Mel goes on. Even though you can argue that both language and music are meaningless mm. and even claim to subscribe to those views, mm. a quick look around demonstrates to me that neither of you believe either of those things, <laughs> which says to me two things. Great. First of all, that we are more hopeful as creatures in our use of music and our communication through music than maybe we logically admit to ourselves. Mm. And second of all, someone thinks we use language in a way that conveys meaning, <laughs> which is just the best news I've ever got. Like, that's that bright up my week. It's very optimistic and hopeful and and also basically says that we're both massive liars. Which I mean I'm I'm willing to own. True but useless. That's our new aim. That's our new mantra. Well I mean you said something similar. Because you know listeners to the main podcast only got about ten minutes of what was about three quarters of an hour of discussion between John and I. Was it that long? And you actually made a very good point about that. Goodness me. Saying that it was the kind of thing that you agreed with in principle hmm. but you felt it was better just to ignore. <laughs> In fact, you made loads of good points and actually uh, like counterpoints to what I was saying. But I, I mean, unfortunately, we completely ran out of space to have you disagreeing with me in, the, in that uh, segment. And I, 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 fortunately, I had to edit those out and put those into the Patreon extras. Literally just my good points. Yes, well, I mean, obviously. Kind of some of my more tangential random stuff made it in, but all the rest of my replies... Well, I mean, I felt they were too good to just throw away free. <laughs> so I condensed them all into one space. Okay. So this is just a quick <laughs> shout out um, that Mike is the lucky, lucky guy who edits this podcast. So if through the listening, you've kind of developed some idea of my character as uh, a dim-witted sidekick. This is all 1984. It's all fake news. You know, you're, you're being... Yes. This isn't going to make it into the final edit, is it? <laughs> I'm, I'm just realized I'm shouting into the recycling bin on a Mac desktop. <laughs> It's that time of year again when Berlin's Superbooth show is on the go, or rather I've been going back over the news of Berlin's Superbooth show, a celebration of everything that goes zwee and blurp. <laughs> 
<laughs> this man has heard a modular synthesizer in his time. I have to say, God, a lot of these synthesizers and synthesizer demos are not a spectator sport. <laughs> I've been watching like demo videos and press releases and product showcases and stuff. How interesting can it ever be to watch some person just kind of looking concentrated and turning knobs slowly, <laughs> uh, pressing the odd button here and there? They've got it's a serious image problem, I think, with a lot of this and stuff. I mean, no matter how dubsteppy your soundtrack, mm. and if I never hear another arpeggiator, I think I'll die happy. <laughs> it's the same with lo- like those Fort of the Floor beats. You reach saturation pretty quickly. I can believe that. I mean, for all the fact that during college, I, I briefly made my money by making videos of myself fiddling with my knobs. <laughs> and those seem to sell Okay Hi family members Who listen to this podcast I think you did it A bit more quickly though The market is oversaturated At this point I would totally agree But there is a definite Mismatch between The slick publicity videos <laughs> And the live product demos You see the product specialist Doing on the stand Yeah, Which usually involves Just a couple of Like Vangelis chords And some really Rubbish improvisation <laughs> Or them hitting The arpeggiator button And, and twiddling a few Knobs slowly <laughs> And then you compare that With the whole Like dub step, everything shaking and kind of moody lighting and everything of the publicity video. Cameras whooshing past the module. It just is a mismatch. But it did get me wondering, given how many of these synth product videos there are now available, Mm. I wonder whether there is now a burgeoning new community of professional synth demo models. (laughs) There's a massive market for them these days. I mean, all you really need is a load of tattoos, Uh a gothic ring or two so your fingers look good, Uh and a willingness to nod gently in tempo, which is basically all they seem to do. You know, that that reminds me of a, a trend in purely electronic music performance a while ago of the super bouncy pads. Oh, yes. Because, you know, as sort of you, you allude to in these demos, it's hard to make controlling an electronic interface look exciting and dynamic. Yeah. And for a while, when all the rage was just those grids of square buttons that would light up in different colours, there's a ton of controllers who do it. Yeah, yeah. There was a habit of pressing it perfectly normally, but the moment you had, acting like it was 3,000 degrees, and just letting your hand fly up (laughs) way past your head, just to kind of try and add some drama to something that is essentially typing. The DJ on a hot tin roof. Precisely. (laughs) If we're keying in to pop culture reference. References relevant to today's kids. Yeah, well, everyone knows that, don't they? <laughs> I should bloody well hope so. If not, go and do your recommended reading before listening to this podcast. Anyway, veering back on topic, there were plenty of new things at the show. Okay. Fortunately for us, not all of them entirely appealing. <laughs> for example, Steinberg were putting in an early uh, contestant to the Straight to Landfill Awards with Retrolog. Oh, wow, really? It's like they've taken a leaf straight out of the TC2290s book and out comes a hardware controller for a software synthesizer analog emulation of an analog synthesizer. So it's kind of digital emulation eating itself again. Wow. Okay, wait, run me through that one more time. You've got a hardware controller Mm -hmm. for a software synth that is imitating analog synth sounds. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> As Matt Bell on the Sound on Sound uh, news video said, with a definite glint in his eye and kind of look at the camera, he said, what, so you mean hardware becomes software becomes hardware again? <laughs> yes, exactly though. But more worryingly, the software specialist said that apparently this is only an experimental prototype what? of an entire operating system they've generated to create hardware controllers for any of their oh, synths and modules. Now, call me old-fashioned, But I thought the whole exciting, good, worthwhile thing about MIDI controllers was that they were assignable. Yeah. 
I love my little oxygen keyboard because I can make the pots do whatever I like. And it is a keyboard of a thousand instruments. I mean, go back to the beginning of MIDI. You can make a flute sound on a piano. How exciting is that? We seem to be actually regressing. Yeah, it's really weird. I think it's just because the manufacturers have locked into this idea that people yearn for this whole physicality that they've lost by going inside the box. And so they're selling it all back to them again. <laughs> it just seems to be also like just a huge bubble. Right. We're going to have cupboards full of all these things when you get to the next version of the software and the hardware thing doesn't work anymore. Yeah. In a time when we're worried about the climate, creating all these inherently shelf life limited hardware products seems almost unethical mm. as well as being rubbish <laughs> as well as just being really rubbish so okay here's here's this question then there is a hunger for that return to physicality and that return to reduced function mm. you know I, I don't personally have a record player but all my cool berlin friends do yeah. and it's a fun way to listen to music <laughs> yeah. because i can't halfway through a song think of a song that i want to play them and just type it into the record. Yes. You know, you sit down, you shut up and you listen. Mm. And in the same way, you know, it, it's really fun playing with analog synths because they can do a lot, but they can't do everything. So, you know, it's exploring a hedge maze <laughs> rather than being lost in the Amazon jungle. Yeah. So if not these single-use desk real estate hogging pieces of trash, where do we go to get that back? How do you, when you're working, how do you kind of scratch that itch? To be honest, I think if you're going to go the software route, you might as well just get used to the idea of power using your, your keyboard and your mouse and things. Mm. And yes, if you want some kind of hardware controller, then have something assignable like, like you have. Right. It makes much more sense to have a little assignable control surface. Mm. And also, most of the time, when you're wanting the physicality of it, you're not wanting it for everything all at once. Mm. There are certain things that you really need and certain things that you don't. It's like we want to have our cake and eat it. We want to go completely in the box and have all the software advantages and yet not lose anything at all in the process. And I think that's kind of unrealistic. So I kind of say, okay, well, that's one of the prices of working in the box. Yeah. It's a bit like when I said to you that I wasn't going to buy an iPod. It's like, it's just not there yet. And I think it will get there yet in good time, but I think it'll get there in an augmented reality form or a virtual reality form. And that makes much more sense in the software domain. It really does. The one thing I would push back on on that is I don't know if you've ever used, honestly, any hardware controller. Yeah, when I have used hardware controllers. <laughs> really? Surprisingly enough. Goodness me, you Luddite. <laughs> Any hardware controller is made or braked <laughs> on the how satisfying it is to actually move the bits about. Mm. You know, you want a bit of resistance mm. from a continuous pot. You want a click like reloading a Magnum 447 gun gun. You, know, <laughs> you want sliders that glide like a hand on velvet. Yes. In augmented reality, virtual reality, you're just going to be whiffing your hands through air. There's nothing. Yeah, you don't get that kind of tactile feedback thing. No. And, it's, and I, think the, I think you're right, that is important. But I think assignable controls make much more sense in that respect. Assignable controls that have an augmented reality overlay. So you can use the tactile feedback of the control but with a fully software reconfigurable interface. Right. But I totally get that because when um, I was still working at SOS, mm. every time a new piece of like analog hardware came through the door, mm. the first thing we would do is open the box and kind of twiddle the controls and flip the switches and things. <laughs> <laughs> and there were some bits of hardware that were really satisfying in that way. Yeah. You know, they kind of go clunk in a nice way. Yeah. And the amount in which we'd sneer at a bit of product that had like plasticky feeling faders or the knobs moved too lightly. And, or, and with analog hardware, I think it's actually non-negotiably vital because if you spent 
three grand on a box that goes in your rack mm. and it's this really subtle com- mastering compressor. Yeah. Which really doesn't have any changeable settings because uh, they've made it right already and, and you'll just mess it up if they let you get into the guts. Mm. So what, what you have is just a, a bypass switch. <laughs> okay. you know, which, you, which you turn off to just put it on top of the track. Yeah. Turning off that bypass switch has got to feel great. It does, doesn't it? It's got to be a <laughs> chunk of an experience. It's got to be like one of those big levers like we referred to last time. That is like the big electrical switchboard lever that, you know, pull down almost like the throttle in a plane. Precisely that. And if it sparks a bit as it makes contact. <laughs> yes. If it's like a limp light switch, if it's like, I'm trying to think, what's what's the least satisfying switch? Oh, you know what? A caps lock key that doesn't always work. <laughs> okay, that to yeah. me is just... Yeah. You can't tell whether it's on or off. Yeah, yeah. There's no kind of click. There's no chunk. There's no position change. Then no one's going to even pretend that you should have spent three grand on that mastering compressor. And the other type of switch I really don't like is like those outdoor light switches that have the rubber facing and you have to press the switch through the rubber facing. <gasps> oh, I know the ones. Oh, I hate those. Me too. I appreciate they're waterproof, but it's trying to operate machinery through a baggy PVC suit. When have you done that? <laughs> I mean, I assume you've done it at some point. I plead the fifth. You've done most other things. <laughs> well, I mean, that wasn't the only underwhelming product at the show for me. I'm so glad to hear that. One of my favourite underwhelming one was um, from a new company called UDO. Udo. Okay. And it was their Super 6 synthesizer. What they called a binaural synth. Oh, I'm already deeply suspicious of that. <laughs> well, does that mean there's like binaural encoding in it? I mean, binaural as a thing is a deeply problematic technology if you're thinking of it in the way I think of it as being like 3D audio through headphones, right? But no, 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 that's not it. What they mean by binaural is basically that each note you play on the synth has a full synth voice per ear or per side. They have a left synth and a right synth playing at the same time. Okay. Each of which has independent like oscillator, filter, VCA, etc. So it's kind of like a true stereo synth. It's not a mono synth that is then widened or modulated in stereo. There's two individual voices. One goes left, one goes right. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to this interview between him and the SOS uh, interviewer mm-hmm. and thinking, big hairy deal. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Why am I impressed by this? Yes. Honestly. I was hoping you'd get to that. And so I thought, okay, maybe I'm being blinkered about this. I don't <laughs> want to completely write it off as being a big hairy deal straight away. Noble of you. So I went and listened to some of the audio examples yeah. and heard him doing the product demo and stuff. Yeah. And God, it just sounded like any old other synth with some stereo effects on it. <laughs> and it was going to be like, I don't know, 2,500 euros or whatever. So, I mean, all these analog synths are kind of really expensive. Yeah. I was so underwhelmed. I couldn't believe it. And he was being really enthusiastic about it. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't want to spend this whole podcast being entirely negative about the show. Oh, no. Because by far the most interesting product on the show for me, and for a lot of people, Mm. was from a new Latvian manufacturer called Game Changer. Tell me more. It's one of the few situations where a product's hypey brand name actually seems to be justified in some respect. Actually pays off. Oh, goodness me. Okay. They were showing their first synthesizer. It's called the Motor Synth. What a name. And what it is, is a kind of a hybrid idea Mm. between, you know, what you think of as a Hammond with these physical electromechanical elements in it and a modern synth. So what it has is it has eight electric motors in the box. Wait, really? And those are the oscillators. Now, there are magnetic pickups in each one of those things that pick up the speed of the motor as it's changed Mm -hmm. to create pitches. 
and they create these kind of gnarly hammery sounds. But in addition, on the axle of each of these motors, there's a little circular disc, and on it, in different rings, it has graphical representations of different synth waveforms that are then scanned optically as the thing rotates. Oh, genius! And you can choose between these. I mean, it's got like saw, sine, and square, I think. Mm. And you can choose between those three waveforms or the electrical waveform that's coming from the pickups. <laughs> it's got eight of these motors, and it's four-note polyphonic, so you get two voices per note. Mm. You can adjust the acceleration and braking speeds for each of these voices. Of the motors. So you get these like weird kind of wacky glissando and portamento effects if you mess with the braking oh, speeds. God, that's cool. Each of the voices has a really nice multi-mode filter with nice crunchy drive on it. Mm-hmm. It's got amplitude filter, pitch modulation, independent arpeggiator, great cross-modulation. It sounds really good. It's one of my favorite controls on it and it has external inputs so you can put any other audio through the sound engine if you want as well oh okay and you know you look at it and it looks great you can see the eight motors spinning away through a big window in the casing and it's all lit up in red and there's a there's also an lcd display that is showing the waveform and it's quite kind of bright white light mike that sounds amazing and so i was thinking you know this just looks great let's just hope it doesn't disappoint okay oh gosh and you listen to some of the demos and they sound fabulous oh i'm so glad okay at last something to celebrate about the best way i can describe it is like the sonic embodiment of steampunk basically it's gutsy <laughs> it's gnarly you get these hammond like kind of aesthetic to pretty much everything I heard from it. And it has that great sense that you don't often get in synth module these days of things being only just under control. Right. And yet it all sounds usable and musical. There are three product demos they had, and each one is just like one great sound after another. Mm. Not everyone agrees. I was looking at the, one of the product demos on YouTube, and one YouTube comment was, Looks ace, sounds like a bag of smashed crabs. <laughs> that was great. Now, bear in mind, though, that in synthesizer land, that's not necessarily a criticism. Well, I don't think so either. (laughs) Honestly, I've not bought a synth in ages. Mm. And that was the one that most had my credit card itching for years. It's a really genuinely exciting product, I think. Now, tell me, what's that coming in at? What damage would that do to an unsuspecting credit card? It will probably be available for Christmas, for, for December this year. Okay. And they're saying that the release price will be about 1,200 euros. 1,200 euros? It's a kind of a module. It doesn't have a keyboard on it. Ah, okay. And it's got MIDI control, by the way. It's, it's MIDI in and out. Oh, amazing. Now, unfortunately, you've missed out on the Indiegogo campaign. No! Where you could get it for, like, 75% of the price. <sighs> because at the end of May, they uh, launched a month-long campaign to try and raise $50,000 worth of capital. Right. And unfortunately, they only brought in $344,830 in capital during that month. (laughs) (laughs) Poor starving artists that they are. Which I think gives you an idea of how excited people are by this thing. Yeah. And I'm excited by it too. I think it's great. That sounds incredible. I I want to see it. I mean, steampunk in a synth sounds like just completely my cup of tea. I'm a huge coghead myself. I was really impressed. And it's not the only product of theirs that I've been really impressed with. Really? From the same makers? Yes. Now, before they developed this synth, they'd also been developing processor pedals and things. And they have something called the Plus Pedal, Mm -hmm. which is 275 euros. Okay. And it looks like a piano sustain pedal. Mm -hmm. And you run whatever instrument you want through it. And that's exactly what it does. It acts like a sustain pedal. Oh, fun. It records in real time the whole time. 
And whenever you hit the sustain pedal, it automatically creates a loop of what's going on at the moment. Okay. And fades it in in real time. <laughs> and it is mental. Some, again, some of the demos, you just go, that is such a good idea. You know, you're, it means that you can create any kind of drone or whatever, or any kind of bit of sustained atmosphere as a solo instrumentalist, hit the sustain pedal, and then solo over the drone. Yeah. It's such a simple and such a clever idea. Uh, so what are these makers again, so that people, by which I mean me, <laughs> can get on YouTube after, after they finish Project Studio Tea Break? The company is called Game Changer Audio. And to be clear, Game Changer Audio have not given us any money yet. No. Yet. So guys, you're listening to this. <laughs> We're not close to the idea. Yes. But just, they don't seem to have got around to it. I mean, you've got quite a lot of excess on that Indiegogo campaign, I think. A few grand, a few grand here, a few grand there. And uh, <laughs> some of these awesome instruments. Spreading the word. They haven't given us any of those things yet. I'm sure they'd be even better if they did. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure. Oh, God. Think of the things we'd say. Imagine. If we were selling out to them for money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which brings us to uh, my favourite section of every other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to have to begin by begging forgiveness, a place that this segment often ends. But I'm actually going to have to begin here because this month's facepalm is not, strictly speaking, about my personal failings. Oh, right. Fear not, fans of my personal failings. There is plenty banked. Good. And plenty being generated on a weekly basis. Good, good. But this one is more... Slapdash, slapshod, what's the expression? Uh, slipshod, slapdash. Slipshod, slapdash attempt at solving a next to impossible situation. So in a past life, I ran a concert series in London mm. at this fantastic warehouse complex called the Rag Factory. Oh, cool. And it was the cross-cultural acoustic variety show. Wow. A name that everyone I told it to advised me against. Uh, give me that again. The cross-cultural acoustic variety show. Wow. I mean, that has so many layers to it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you could go and really not be quite sure what you'd come up against, whether it would be like heavy-duty political propaganda or whether it would just be lots of people strumming into an acoustic guitar. We may have had both at different times. So our, our only hard and fast rules, this is such a force of habit, talking about our, it was me. It was me, my laptop, and a lot of stubbornness. There's got to be developmental hubris going on in any early part of anything. <laughs> really? So the team and I, yeah. our organisation felt mm. that music had to be entirely acoustic and every night's programme should exhibit music from around the world. Okay, right. So we'd had a few of these and it all went great. And I had some friends helping me set up the bar and things yeah. like that. And we weren't allowed to sell alcohol so we could sell raffle tickets, which had a 100% <laughs> prize rate of a beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. A truly bootlegged operation. And then half an hour before we were going to go up, the headlining band of the evening dropped out. Oh, wow. What were you expecting in terms of audience? 100, 150? It's a decent-sized crowd, yeah. So it's enough to have a small-scale riot if music is not forthcoming. <laughs> Raffle tickets will fly. With nothing but love for the assembled people. I'm not sure if rioting was really in their songbook. <laughs> I think they might have gathered around someone with an acoustic guitar and sung some very scathing protest songs about our lack of organisation. You might have had to have dealt with a very strongly worded sit-in. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the man who ran uh, this organisation was 
very scary. So I think a sit-in would have been more intimidating to me yeah. than if they'd just thrown chairs at the walls and we could have just passed that off as an art installation. Mm. So this band called me half an hour before and they had just got back from a tour. Everyone was too exhausted, so they weren't going to come and play. But I know you as a, a master of invention, as a, a man of resourcefulness, <laughs> a Swiss army knife of the promotion scene. I felt a bit more like a stick than a Swiss army knife at this moment in terms of my... <laughs> Um, utility and general resourcefulness. So, of course, texts went out to everybody I knew. Yeah, yeah. Saying, depending on what I thought of their music, could you please come and play? Or do you know someone who could come and play? Yes. And nothing was coming back. Unsurprisingly, most people were booked at this time on a Friday night. I mean, half an hour in advance as well. It's like just to get in there in time. I know. And so I turned to the only thing I could think of. I asked one of my friends to kind of open the event because our openers had already arrived. Yeah. And I just sprinted to Brick Lane, which was not far. And I started running up and down looking for pubs that advertised live music. Okay. I would then run in, try to find the band, <laughs> and see if I could persuade them to play a half-hour set. Oh, fabulous. Whether that was before their set at this place that had already booked them, <laughs> whether they had a half-hour break between sets and they could just lug their stuff down. You were kind of band poaching, basically, was what you were doing. I was doing my best to rob wherever I could. Um... <laughs> and let me guess, when you got back, you realised that all the pubs had stolen all your other bands. <laughs> <laughs> we just entirely swapped musical programs for the evening. <laughs> and so it was that that evening, if memory serves, we opened with a fascinating tabla solo by a guy called Dhruv Katari, mm-hmm. who um, then kind of explained things about the rhythmic cycles in tabla. Cool. It was it was really interesting. And then an Uru ensemble, a kind of silk and wood Chinese ensemble. Oh, lovely, yeah. They were on tour in London and they were kind enough to add us to their schedule. And then a kind of funk rock pub band. As you do. Who weren't acoustic at all, but had been playing <laughs> locally that night and their situation was they they did have a set break of half an hour right and something about my sweating panting desperation touched them on some level <laughs> and, and yeah the drummer borrowed a cajon oh uh, well i mean then that made it acoustic basically <laughs> We did have a bass amp in, but the guitarist played an acoustic guitar. Okay. And they gave us funk rock. Unplugged. For the evening and were toasted with many beers. Fabulous. So this is my story of desperation and woe (laughs) and sprinting up and down Brick Lane, (laughs) trying to sneak into back rooms to talk to bands without the owner noticing. Yeah. Thinking they might have somewhat dim view on me trying to take their band for the night. So in retrospect then, what do you feel is your take-home bit of wisdom here from your experience? That's a very good question. I mean, could you have predicted that that band were going to stand you up? I don't know if I could, you know. I mean, they were booked, they were confirmed. I didn't make the effort to check what their plans were immediately before. But I'm not sure if I'd do that now, to be honest with you. If if a band comes to me recommended or just seems to be reasonably well set up, Mm. if they say they're going to get themselves somewhere, I sort of just leave that to them as a rule. Yeah. So it's very hard to say. What would you have done? Could you have kept like someone on the bench? Could you have had like a reserve band who were there as the call? (laughs) You know, well, we can't squeeze you in, but if we have a cancellation. There you go, there you go. Or maybe could you have just kept your nose flute skills up to scratch (laughs) just in case you needed to step in for a half hour? 
Well, the problem with me having any of my instruments there is that I would ensure that at least one band cancelled each time in order to force myself to step into yeah. the breach. <laughs> and then you'd have been stuffed when two of them cancelled. Yes, I would have done. <laughs> I suppose maybe what you could have done is if you were going to be very kind of hippie about it, mm. you could have said, well, we've deliberately left a space in this set for self-expression and <laughs> this is the jam session. I mean, that would have been the nuclear option, wouldn't it? Uh-huh. You could say, well, we're going to be riffing on these You could start them off with a bit of impromptu beat poetry. I'll be honest, this is sounding more exciting. (laughs) I'm thrilled to introduce, come from all over London, for this night only, all of you. (gasps) Gasp! Is that that even allowed? You could have made it a happening. Yes! I missed my chance. Where were you? So what in the end got you out of that thing? Was that the straw that broke the camel's back? There was a couple more after that. I think, honestly, what it was, I'd expected the thing to kind of develop a momentum of its own, mm. at which point I could just sort of take a step back a bit mm. and let it more or less run itself. And it really never did. I wound up with this unhealthy relationship with it where five minutes before every single show, I would swear blind to anyone listening, never again. You've had it. Let's get this one over with. I haven't got the mental real estate to ever do this ever again. And then the evening would end and people would be in such a good mood and they'd be drinking and music and and people would stick around for a jam afterwards. Yeah. And we hung art by young artists that we'd gone out and found. And sometimes those young artists managed to sell some people Pieces, oh, fabulous. Which is always really exciting for us. I mean, you were a one-man cultural movement. And I'd say, gosh, let's do one more of these. Yeah. And this cycle would just reliably repeat. A month later, I would be sad and stressed. And... Your sense of motivation was like a kind of a downward sawtooth wave <laughs> with a frequency of a month. Yes, the fade out on a sawtooth. This facepalm sponsored by Superbooth. <laughs> This month, in honour of the world record attempt, I'm proposing a question of my own. Oh! Now, when I recorded the video, of course, I couldn't not mic it up. So I had mics all over the place, and I was thinking to myself, this is a pretty weird recording session. (laughs) But I'm not sure it's the strangest thing I've ever recorded. So that is my question this month. What is the strangest thing you've ever recorded? Well, my first thought is to go to um, sound effects that I've tried to source. Okay. Um, in my early days of theatre composition, before I discovered freesound.org. Yes. <laughs> Not currently a sponsor of the show, but for the amount they've done for my career, I think they get a free shout out. Yeah, I reckon so. So before I realised that other lunatics had already run around trying to get the sound of bees or like, <laughs> I don't know, the water under Millennium Bridge. Yep. I did exactly those things myself. Climbing up trees to try to get the rustle of wind through leaves. Dedication. And just getting like air buffeting my microphone. And you get some bonus extras. You get man falling out of tree. (laughs) Agonised scream. You get landowner (laughs) screaming and rapidly approaching. Gunshots. Get off of my land. (laughs) There we go. Stereotypical Zomerzet threats. That's the one. There's no end of good material there. So yeah, walking around with a Zoom record trying to capture the ambiance of weird places. I mean, the one that most swiftly came to mind for me was a really, really great psychedelic rock artist that I recorded a whole album for. Mm. He did various kind of audio collage things as part of this album project, Mm. and one of which involved recording hoovers. (laughs) 
Okay. But not just any old recording of Hoovers. It was actually two Hoovers, and he wanted them recorded in stereo so that he could switch one on, walk across and switch the other one uh-huh. on, on the other side of the stereo image, and then walk back and switch the other one off and, and keep turning them on and off and walking in between them as a stereo effect. That sounds really cool. But, you know, it was actually going to be the centre of one of his audio collage pieces. So I thought, well, actually, I kind of feel it should sound some good. And <laughs> I hadn't realised if you try and put a microphone up on a hoover, pretty much you just get a kind of noise. Oh, interesting. Whereas when you listen to a hoover, really, you hear lots of the whine of the motor and you hear the kind mm-hmm. of a note that it produces. There's a pitch to it, isn't there? And originally from the stereo mics, I was getting nothing like that at all. So I found myself actually having to spot mic a hoover. <laughs> To try and get, and like, you know, doing all the things you normally do with a cello or a double bass or whatever, and putting your ear in different spots to try and find the bit that was like... That's amazing. I, 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 because I was going to ask, you know, what is studio best practice? Well, I mean, now I know. I was like feeling for where the air was coming out of the vent so I wasn't getting wind noise. And <laughs> it was just, yeah, I was getting well into it. When is the Sound on Sound special coming out on, on the? I had almost thought that I might actually write a piece for SOS on it. Mm. Because although it's so absurd doing this kind of thing, mm. in practice, I was using all the same skills I would have used to record a drum kit or anything else. I was still thinking about, you know, the directionality of the mics and where the instrument as such was dispersing its different frequencies yeah. and where the, like, the proximity effect would help or not and which mic I was going to use. It was actually a proper recording task. But I was recording two hoovers in stereo. <laughs> That's a beautiful experience. What's the name of the artist? Impossible Colours. And in fact, just recently, I wasn't able to make the gig, but they recently uh, went out and played the whole thing live as well, which would have been really cool. I wonder whether they had the live hooverists there. <laughs> I, I need that to have been <laughs> the case. Wouldn't be too much extra work to put two hoovers, one on either side of the stage. No, I don't think so. So thinking of strange recordings, I had an idea for a song for a project. And so that it didn't float away, I I made kind of a quick recording full of mistakes on my phone Mm. uh, and then went off and did other things. And when I came to actually make it, I had a listen. I I, I relearned it. It was a ukulele line. Mm -hmm. And then I got out some nice mics and I recorded it. Yeah. And I spent a morning going back and forth and wondering what I was doing wrong. Yeah. And I eventually eventually just imported the recording from my phone (laughs) and decided I wasn't going to do better than that. And it was the most frustrating thing in the world. I know. And it so often happens too. You get a bit of magic that just gets captured in the moment Mm -hmm. and then you can never get that thing back again. And so I thought, well, you know... (laughs) I am selling this piece of music and I'm selling myself as, a, as an audio professional. So at the very <laughs> least, I'm going to clean it up with some processing. Nope, only made it worse. Yep. Only made it worse. So I left it. Yep. And then I was like, okay, well, there's a couple of blatant errors. I'll fix those. Nope. No. Nope, made it worse again. <laughs> the best I can do <laughs> is what just came out my fingers as I was about to, you know, rush out to buy some toilet paper. Yep. And so that's now the core of the track. Mm-hmm. So that baffles me to this day. No, I totally get that. And still annoys me a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like the best thing I can do is stuff that I have no control over. Yes, It's basically exactly. what it's an admission of, isn't it? The admission of just how pointless my cleverness is. It's like, damn you, Psyche. I did mic up handfuls of cheese straws being eaten. Was this a personal hobby? Again, this is kind of Foley stuff. Mm. It was this choir recording I did for the, an audio book. And their quest was to try and create the entire CD, music, narration, sound effects and everything, entirely 
vocally from the sounds they made, body percussion, all that kind of stuff. Oh, interesting. And they had one scene where there were some woodworms biting through a door as part of the story. It's a children's story. Okay. And so there was this hysterical thing where various different members of the choir were like trying to make crunching noises and stuff and there were like crumbs going everywhere. And, and the, the problem was that it was really dry, of course. And then if you start laughing with cheese straws, it just gets messy so quickly. It was shrapnel went everywhere. All is lost at that moment. <laughs> and the other great memory I have of that session was they were trying to do the sound of thunder. Oh, yeah. And the way they did it was that the entire choir would jump in the air. Oh, God. And then land on the risers. Wait, risers? They've got to have a lot of trust in those risers. It sounded like a bunch of people jumping on large wooden boxes, which is what it was. <laughs> Fair comment. But then if you like filtered the top end out and added some reverb, it sounds really like thunder. Again, I can send you the clip. I would love to hear that. But I just have this brilliant image of them trying to coordinate this thing because they didn't <laughs> want to have it that everyone jumped up and then everyone landed just in a big clump. Yeah. Because that wouldn't sound like thunder at all. So they did it by staggering it from left to right. So they'd count it in and then the people on the left-hand side would start jumping first mm. and then it would do a kind of a ripple around the choir. Oh my God. So you get this <laughs> go around the choir to try and get the lightning kind of effect. So did they try and do it rhythmically that you're coming in a semi-quaver after or was it a kind of just as soon as the person to your left has jumped? The degree of visual communication and concentration involved in that thing was enormous. I mean, please tell me you recorded it in stereo. Absolutely. It was practically surround. So you could have this whoosh across the image. <laughs> It was brilliant. I mean, that whole sequence, actually, because basically they did the sound of a rainstorm happening and they did all that by, like, clicking their fingers and rubbing their hands together and, like, patting their legs and stuff. <laughs> and it turned out really, really cool. That sounds brilliant. Which brings us to What Is Your Jam? And you join us in Project Studio Tea Break Studios all abuzz because I've just given Mike his first listen to this month's jam. Mike, what do you think? <laughs> the word I just WhatsApped you while listening to the track was yow. Yow! was about my response. Mm. You know, it's not that common when I listen to a track and I listen to it all the way through that I can't restrain myself from going back and listening to a bit that I just heard again. <laughs> and it's the bit where it's after the middle section mm. and then the choir then brings the beat back in and the beat up to that point has always been four on the floor mm -hmm. and it, it syncopates the downbeat. Oh, I just, I died and went to heaven at that point. I know exactly the moment you're talking about. It's gorgeous. All right, so we're going to leave that as a cliffhanger <laughs> to lure our audience to stay with us. Um, but of course, we can't have jam without a spot of toast. Indeed. So, what's our toast for, Mike? We have another Project Studio Tea Break first. Mm. We have our first guest Foley artist. My goodness me. <laughs> our very own Charlotte Senior, <laughs> daughter of host. And she just came out with some fabulous toast Foley while we were sitting around the breakfast table. Oh, yeah. And I listened to it, not having seen what she was doing, and thought, wow, that sounds really good. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't toast. And so I immediately spotted the potential. I was there as a talent scout, dragged her into the studio. It's the life we live. What for you is an hour a month, for us is a lifelong obsession. So here we are, our first guest toast foley. I'm almost at a loss for words. And before we discover actually what made this sound, I just want to say, 
I love the length. Mm. I love the smoothness. It sounds like well toasted and crispy, but at the same time, there's no tear. Mm. There's not a moment where you kind of pull a bit of the bread off. You can feel the butter being applied. You can. You can kind of see that tiny little boundary layer where the butter is melting off of the knife mm. onto the hot toast. <laughs> I'm there, Mike. I'm actually there. It's a kind of a toast foley prodigy we've discovered. What is the methodology? Can we steal the trade secret here? Maybe if we shred ourselves afterwards. Yeah, so <laughs> the secret was that she was using a knife, which I think is maybe the part of the secret to the verisimilitude. Part of the veracity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but applying it to an artist's canvas. Oh, interesting. And in fact, as we were discussing how to record it, she took the canvas that I had so inexpertly suggested that she used mm. and said, no, we can't use that one. I have another one that sounds much better. Okay, so... <laughs> See, that's what it takes. It's that kind of instinctive, intuitive grasp of what makes good toast foley. You had been told. Mm. What I'm enjoying is the idea of your house just full of old masters. <laughs> you know, the, these huge, ancient, 300-year-old paintings of dukes and dogs and stuff. And just pulling these off the wall at random and scraping knives over them for a stupid podcast. Wouldn't I love to have a house full of valuable art, but um, I have even more valuable young masters right, right. in the house who regularly apply themselves to canvases. Understood. A crisp, clear toast folly, one for the Hall of Fame and no mistake. But now you've had me on tenterhooks for too long. <laughs> what was this tremendous track? This is Love Theory by Kirk Franklin. And it's been a long time since I've played a track on loop as much as I've played this. What Mike describes as his compulsion to go back and listen to a bit again is my reliable compulsion to go back and just start the track from zero. <laughs> um, it is incredibly catchy. It's modern urban gospel. It starts with this um, jangly, I don't know, what I would call house piano. Yeah. Huh, jangly doesn't seem like a great word. Have you got like a more specific one for that sound? It had a kind of a flavour of that 90s R&B soul sound. Mm. It made me think a little bit Janet Jackson. Okay, yeah, I definitely go with that. And it's a kind of very attacky piano, which I associate with Elton John playing. Yeah. His obsession with Yamahas just to get that shininess coming through. That's a good way of saying it. And it's very simple chords. It starts from the six of a minor scale, so F sharp major. Mm -hmm. This case then it goes up to the one via some funky walking bass yeah and then goes to one dominant so the one of a minor key but now it's major and with a dominant seventh on it cool which would normally pull it to the four yeah but because the six is the relative major of the four it kind of in a weird roundabout way takes it to shimmies it does it shimmies back to the six okay i promise i won't talk about those numbers anymore am i hearing like stevie wonder in there it seems a bit Stevie Wonderish too. In that kind of harmony thing, there's notes that are just kind of loitering around there. <laughs> you know, they're not doing anything, but they just thought they'd muscle in on whatever chord they happened to be going with. It looked like fun, so they thought they'd slip their way in there. Yeah. For me, the the chorus is way more Stevie Wonder. I don't want to love nobody but you. I don't want to love nobody but you. Which is just a series of unrelated two five ones. <laughs> he threw some darts at a piano from across the room and wherever it landed he started a 2-5-1 from there then from the next then from the next but it's smooth as oh yeah 
I mean, the production is actually really, really good and really heavy too. Yeah. Almost surprisingly heavy, even for like a modern like hip hop thing. They really have laid on the bass and stuff. The kick is enormous. I was surprised the first time I put this on headphones because I, I heard this just on my laptop speakers when I was out and about. Mm. Yeah, I was surprised just how much force that low end has. But punchy with it too. They've taken real attention to get something that is super tight and then boosted the low end on it. This is not just sort of uh, low soundscapes. No, no, this is no. music with intention and a target and an unashamedly large battery of synth. Yes. Because the chords don't really change, uh, <laughs> except in the chorus and then, then the middle eight. Yeah. You've just got these essentially two chords through the rest of the song. But, you know, just put them on something roadsy, then put them on a portamento-y <laughs> kind of synth. And like it or not, it works. There's a lot of arrangement going on, isn't there? The arrangers sat back after doing this, rubbed his hands together and thought, yep, that was a good day's work. <laughs> I mean, I like that drop for the second verse, for example. You know, you build up into the first chorus and then it drops back and the bass drops out and it's just your snare and stuff for the beginning of the second verse, that kind of classic second verse drop. Yeah, back to that kind of original piano riff. Yeah. I think it has to be very well arranged. And the reason that it has to be very well arranged is that Kirk Franklin does a bit of a James Brown on this because all the lines that we've been talking about, he doesn't sing those lines. <laughs> You're right. A really brilliant choir sings those lines. Uh, but choirs, one of the things with choirs is that they do occasionally have to breathe in order to keep making noise. Yeah. One of the frailties of the human voice. Yeah. And so when that happens, just to keep our interest, he'll shout something like, yep, or that's right. Whatever. A two-word summary of what the story's been about so far. The odd hallelujah's in there. The odd hallelujah. The normal hallelujah. <laughs> the, uh, the reverse hallelujah. Very tricky, but pulled off expertly by Mr. Franklin. Yep. And so if he's not doing some world-class <laughs> arranging on it, you do start to wonder why his name is under the artist field. Yeah. Deeply cool, deeply funky. I, I can see why you'd have it on a loop, because it sets a mood and it just has that high energy thing and you want it to keep going. You don't want it to stop. I can imagine it being a brilliant worship song because you just finish it wanting to stay in that space to not go anywhere else. Well, have you seen the video? I haven't. Oh my God, there's a video. The video is a performance of it in a church. I've got to watch that. So wait, is this derived from live audio? No, I don't think it is. It's uh, like a mocked up as if it's being performed in a church in a gospel like context. Okay. But then it's intercut with this guy going shopping and going around his daily stuff with his headphones on, clearly supposedly listening to this track. Mm. But then in the background around him, without him noticing, everyone's doing these kind of Janet Jackson he moves break dancing handstands and stuff and, and when he's paying for his groceries on all the other tills behind him there are people like standing up on the tills and the conveyor belts bopping around I need to get me a look at that it's good Love Theory by Kirk Franklin and I've got to say it's not miles off I'm lucky enough uh, these three weeks to be within rollerblading distance of work so I'm commuting in and out each day on rollerblades I don't think I've heard anything quite as millennial as that in a long time <laughs> <laughs> it lets me keep my hands free so I can play Pokemon and, um, you know, destroy the housing market and things like that. To eat your avocado toast. In my mind, that's more or less how I look when I'm blading. Because mm. I'm absolutely grooving along as I go. I'm doing little slaloms. I'm doing little hops. Oh, yeah. And I have made the personal decision to never see what that actually looks like. <laughs> I don't want to know. But my personally held conviction, which no one's allowed to touch, yeah, yeah, is yeah. that... 
it does look like a professional backing dancer bringing the groove to the world. And why let reality interfere with that? Not sure what it's ever done for us. What is life about if you're not allowed to at least delude yourself? <laughs> I mean, we spend so much time trying to avoid lying to other people. It's nice to just be able to relax when you're around yourself. When you get home at night, it's time to just kick off your shoes and delude. Yeah. Delude in the nude. <laughs> is a crochet I have up on my wall, a cross-stitch. Surrounded by peonies. <laughs> like home sweet home, deluded the nude. Exactly that. Love Theory by Kirk Franklin. Go show him some love. Good choice. Which almost brings us to the end of this month's episode. Shame of shames. But we have exciting news still to divulge. Well, it's difficult because we record this thing in advance. Basically, what I wanted to do was, right, (laughs) I've been getting people saying, oh, what's the link to this? What's the link to that that we've talked about in the podcast? Mm. And I was thinking, well, what I should do is I should put together a whole list of these for every episode as we do it and mail this out to people who listen. A brilliant idea. And I wanted to be able to say that a new website for this mailing list is now live, but I haven't yet finished it. (laughs) (laughs) But we are in the past and we are talking to future breakers. Uh, We're hoping by the time that you listen to this, Mm. this website will be live and you can sign up for the mailing list. Let's be more secure. Let's say, hey, future listeners, as of right now, this is said with the confidence of a person whose job it isn't to get this up. As of right now, (laughs) the website is live as is the mailing list. Get yourself signed up for all our top news. Well, I mean, I kind of felt myself inspired a little bit in this by a, a quote I heard from Leonard Bernstein which went something along the lines of if you want to create anything great you need two things a plan and not quite enough time (laughs) that's good I feel personally attacked by that quote yes (laughs) it's the story of both our lives I think it speaks to us on a close personal level which I don't know that's not the worst company to keep is it I don't have quite enough time to put this together so I'm going to commit myself to it and then hopefully it'll come out all of which is to say where can they find this website well I'm going to use the same web domain we've already been using but I'm now just going to route that to its own dedicated site for this where you can find out information about it listen to all the episodes sign up to the mailing list and there's links to all the patreon stuff as well so we're hacking the gigabytes to a cloud server via blockchain for any of you tech geeks out there you were there (laughs) there we go there we go (laughs) i am the computer (laughs) consultant here do we have a sponsor this month mike as always i mean we have a a long queue of people wanting to support this podcast (laughs) as you know clamoring they are john as a seasoned live performer i think you will you will know the scourge that is people holding up their mobile phones at gigs. Oh, dear me. Yes. It's been a blight in the last, like, 10, 15 years. It's broken out like a rash. But this month's sponsors have decided to accept this new reality and make a virtue of it. Oh, yes. Now, you have heard of crowd surfing. I have. You've heard of crowdfunding. Uh, yes. You've heard of crowdsourcing. I'm getting more nervous. Well... Now, Tory Systems, specialists in product decentralization since the 17th century, they give us crowd-louding with their new crowd-loud app. What? Crowd-louding? This comes from very sound scientific principles. Okay. Now, do you know the principle of line arrays? Line arrays. Absolutely not, but I'm excited to learn it. Well, if you go to a big gig and you look at the speaker system, mm. you'll see that there are kind of a chain of little speakers. Mm. It's because you can't build speakers beyond a certain size without it getting ridiculously expensive. Okay. So what they did was they decided to make bigger systems not by making a huge speaker, but by having smaller speakers in a modular array. Brilliant. So the more speakers you hang up, the more power you get out the front. And of course, 
the logical conclusion to this is why not make the speakers even smaller and even more numerous? <laughs> so, so you have one speaker per listener. And this is the secret behind Crowd Loud, the app. The app streams the front of house audio directly to the phones of the entire audience, <laughs> turning them into a massive line array. I know we've said this before, but uh, this is a really good idea, Mike. Like, it sounds... <laughs> well, of course it is. This is the cutting edge of new technology. It's only been made possible recently by advances in precise GPS positioning that has enabled them now to compensate for the latency on the different phones in the different parts of the audience and make them create the, create the sound image. And the advantages are myriad. As I'm sure you can imagine. You know, musicians can gig wherever they like, wherever they can find an audience. Pop-up gigs, impromptu performances become possible anywhere. Incredible. The system automatically scales itself to the size of the audience. <laughs> In smaller rooms, you have fewer phones. So quieter sound. Yep. You have true surround sound, of course. <laughs> and furthermore, the venues are really buying into this now because it means it's possible to have earbud-only gigs after hours. So when the noise regulations don't let you have a gig, you can just get everyone to plug their earphones in. And away you go. It's quite as a mouse. <laughs> so many thanks to Tory Systems for supporting the podcast. And I've also heard through the grapevine that exciting new developments are on the way in the lighting arena as well via their Crowd Light app. <laughs> you know, you can change colours on the screen and then use the camera's flash for strobe effects. Amazing. So I mean, there is a certain amount of dedication required in holding <laughs> up your phone to the band throughout the gig to make sure that they get the correct light on the correct parts. But on the plus side, you get much better audio on your little recording that you do at the gig. Oh my goodness. Straight from the desk. For the first time in history, it will be a pleasure to receive from someone some footage and audio from a live gig. I don't think anyone's ever enjoyed that <laughs> in the past. It's always been that shaky thing of like, what the hell's going on? It sounds like someone's in an airport. Yes, yep. Hoovering. <laughs> 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 We're not going to get a better callback than that. As ever, our Twitter is at twitter.com forward slash PSTB tweets and at Facebook PSTB books. Uh, come say hi there. Reviews on iTunes are one of the best ways to spread the podcast. The other best way is to tell a friend or an enemy. Very much appreciated. And of course, if you can support our podcast via our Patreon page, then you will be able to see our world record attempt video. Oh, really? I've got scans of the beginner's handbook to the Ondialine that we mentioned the other day. I've got to get up on there. Um, I have news of the anti-ageist hip-hop sensation Madhur Jaffrey and full details of John's exploding intestines. There's everything. Dear me. Uh, we'll see you next month. Bye. Ta-ra, Fett.